I heard that. Did you guys just hear it? Like it went down. I'm like, oh, I guess we got 30 seconds left, but it's time to preach. So I don't know if you guys had heard or not, but there's an election on Tuesday. So uh, I'm going to tell you exactly how to vote. I've been waiting to have this political message where I can let you know all of my thoughts on these issues. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to be in Micah today. Thank the Lord, right? And yet, here's the thing. If you are a citizen, you should vote. You should. It's part of your duty, right? Now, how you vote, I'm not going to tell you how, but you should be shaped by God's word in all that it says, which means, which dumpster fire do I pick? No, I'm just kidding. Um, it feels that way, though, sometimes, doesn't it? Which makes it ridiculous to stand up here and say, this is what God would have of you. This is what... It's, it's more complex than that. And yet, on all the days that we pray for the persecuted church, we're reminded our government actually does matter. And many of the freedoms that we take for granted are not always guaranteed to be free. And so I just, I want you guys to be responsible, do your thing. But here's the thing. Don't put your hope there. Don't put your hope there. Put your hope in the gospel. It's a far more sure hope and it has a way of uniting us rather than dividing us. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at a brief video that will introduce us to the book of Micah. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time we have now to turn in your word and be shaped by it. God, we want your word to shape our mind and our hearts and our actions and so would your spirit be at work in this place right now in this moment? God, would you be ever almighty to save and to encourage and to give us a captivating vision of reality? Holy Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me? But would you speak? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Micah was written by the prophet Micah, most likely between 735 and 700 B.C., Micah delivers prophecy to both Israel and Judah of their immediate demise and future hope. Both kingdoms are operating in constant violation of their covenant with God. The political leaders have become wealthy through greed and marginalization of the poor, breaking God's commandments. Moreover, the corrupt prophets and priests exchange promises of God's favor and protection for personal wealth. Micah warns the kingdoms that God will allow the Assyrian and Babylonian empires to wage war resulting in their destruction. However, the book ends with a promise. After Israel's exile, God, like a good shepherd, will rescue his flock and guide them back to righteous, humble living. Does anybody in here like a good courtroom drama? Maybe that's like your favorite television show, or maybe you like some of the classic movies like to Kill a Mockingbird, or A Few Good Men were these courtroom scenes, or maybe your favorite is one of the more recent ones, a, a Just Mercy. There's something about a courtroom and its ability to either deliver justice or to pervert justice that has a way of captivating our imaginations, doesn't it? And so it's become fodder for thousands of movies and television shows and stories, we're going to see a courtroom scene today. But before we get there, in the book of Micah, we see that God speaks his condemnation and judgment against his people for a variety of reasons. 
In chapter 1, he calls out his people for their sins and their false worship, for how they turn over and over and over again to idolatry and the worship of false gods, and how offensive that is and how foolish that is. In chapter 2, he calls out those oppressors who take houses and fields from those with no power or voice to oppose them and their unjust economic practices. He takes the rulers of Israel to task in chapter 3. Those who hate the good and love the evil, those who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, God pronounces his judgment on the rulers and the kings. And then in chapter 3, he also calls out the prophets of God, who prophesy good things, peace, and prosperity to those who are able to pay them well. But bad things, war, and destruction, and devastation for those who are too poor to bribe them. Almost a pay-for-play scheme going on there. In light of all of this, God enters the courtroom in Micah chapter 6, and he puts the people of Israel on trial. Let's see how it turns out, shall we? Look with me at Micah 5, or 6, verses 1 to 5. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord." So in many ways, in chapters 1 to 5 of the book of Micah, God has laid out his case of judgment against his people. He has told them what has so deeply and gravely offended him. Idolatry, bribery, the perverting of justice. But now that they are actually gathered into the courtroom, the evidence that he brings is not now of their failures, but rather of his faithfulness. He brings front and center his own record and the way in which he has kept the covenant that he promised to his people. He says, what have I done to you? Is it my fault that you have so utterly failed? How have I wearied you? Answer me, people. Have I failed in my end of the bargain? And of course, the answer is no. God has not failed his people. God has not fallen short of his end of the covenant. He has been faithful to fulfill it all. And as if to remind them of his faithfulness, God recalls three different stories that show to them, I redeemed you, I protected you, and I faithfully kept my promises to you. Let me just show you each of the stories. Story number one is that of the Exodus, where God says, I redeemed you, I rescued you. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. You were slaves. You had no power. You cried out for deliverance, and I did that. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And so God says, I rescued you. I redeemed you. I appointed over you godly leaders that led you and told you what I required of you. I kept up my end of the bargain. And story number two, that of Balak and Balaam. He says, I protected you. Oh, my people, verse 5. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Now, isn't it interesting how both Micah and God assume that the people are familiar with these stories? 
The Bible works like that. It, it builds on itself. The stories that unfold in the early parts come and, and, and bring meaning and clarity to things later on. And so, in many ways, you and I, when we're like, Balak and Balaam, what exactly was that story? We often have to go back, and this is what makes the Thread series such an important thing. So we see the Bible unfold in all of its stories, and then in the new parts, it refers back to the old parts, and so we have to ask, what happened with Balak and Balaam that's so helpful for us today? What, what, what about it shows the faithfulness of God? See, the, the story of Balak and Balaam will forever be seared in my mind as the talking donkey story. Because that's what it was called in the children's Bible that my wife Liz and I read to our kids when they were very, very young. And let me tell you, it was little Annabelle, two-year-old Annabelle's favorite story for about a year. You want to know why? Because she made, it read, made us read it to her every night for over a year. And so as we would read the story of the talking donkey and Balaam, like we would read it and she would be mouthing the words because she had it memorized. And he hit the donkey over and over again, right? But if you want to know the actual story, it's in Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24. See, after defeating the Amorites and heading toward the promised land, the people of God come and camp on the plains of Moab. And Balak, who is the king of Moab, is scared of the people of God because of God's faithfulness and hand of blessing on them. And so he gets an idea in his head. I'm going to go hire a prophet of God to go and pronounce a curse upon the people rather than a blessing on the people. And that will somehow uh, counteract God's faithful presence to them. And so he goes to a prophet by the name of Balaam, and he agrees to pay Balaam to put a curse on God's people. And Balaam accepts. And as he's going to meet Balak and, and stand on the mountains and curse the people down in the valley, we get the story of the talking donkey. Balaam's donkey sees what he is unable to see, and so he consistently goes off of the path. And every time he does, Balaam takes out a stick and starts beating the donkey. Stubborn donkey, right? And in this moment, after the third time, God gives that donkey a, a voice to speak, and he opens Balaam's eyes to see what the donkey had been seeing, and he's like, oh no, I guess I've been the donkey the whole time, right? <laughs> or another word that the KJV might use. And Balaam in that moment fears the Lord and agrees to only say what the Lord gives him to say. And so he goes up on the mountain and rather than cursing the people of God three times, he prophesies a blessing over them. Speaks a word of blessing. The, the story is meant to show that God not only rescues and redeems his people, but he also protects them. He is for them, and he protects them from this word of cursing being placed upon him. And so here in Micah, we are reminded of this story that God rescues and redeems his people, that God protects his people. And one more story. From Shittim to Gilgal, God keeps his promises. The end of verse 5, And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? On the way to the promised land, the last place that they camped outside the promised land was a city called Shittim. And after crossing the Jordan on dry ground, which was in itself an incredible miracle, you can read about in Joshua 3 and 4, the first place that they camped inside the promised land was, let me, you can guess, Gilgal. 
So from Shittim to Gilgal, it was a reminder that God not only makes promises, but he keeps them, and he brought them into the land that he promised that they would possess. And so here in Micah, these three stories are, are brought up to remind them, I redeemed you, I protected you, and I fulfilled my promises to you. So the problem in this situation is not God. He has absolutely kept up his end of the bargain. The blame for all that took place actually falls on the people. And God has made a devastating case as the prosecuting attorney. There's five chapters worth of things. And he has shown completely that God is not at fault in any way. And so the question becomes, how do we make it right? We're guilty. What does God require of us for us to move forward and be okay? And that's what verses 6 to 8 are all about. Let's read them together. With what shall I come before the Lord or bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does God require of them for their guilt? Listen to Micah tick through all of the typical sacrifices in order to make atonement, in order to make things right, and how they get gradually more and more and more. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves, a year old? Shall I make atonement as the law prescribes for me to do so? And the answer here is an implicit no. The author of Hebrews reflects, how can the blood of bulls and goats and rams take away the sin of man? It is insufficient. It can't make it right. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I up the quantity of my sacrifices? Will more sacrifices get the job done? And the implicit, once again, is no, it's not the quantity of the sacrifices. That's not how it's going to work. And then we see, you get to the very heart, shall I give up my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Shall I up the quality of the sacrifice and give the one thing that I cannot be possibly asked to part with? And the answer here is no, not even that is enough. The implication is meant to hit us like a ton of bricks, like it hit Israel. There isn't anything you can do to make it right. No amount of sacrifices that you bring will satisfy the debt that you have. Not even if you offered your firstborn, even that won't erase the stain of your sin. So what does God want of them? He tells them in verse 6, and to love mercy or love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. If you're into any Christian art, lots of coffee cups and lots of wall hangings have this particular verse on them. In fact, in our home, we have a metal cutout of this verse hanging in our entryway. It's a beautiful verse. What does God want? He wants all of us. 
He wants them to do justice, to stop oppressing the poor, stop taking economic advantage of those who can't defend themselves, stop cheating one another with false scales. He tells the rulers and the kings to stop calling evil good and good evil. He says to the prophets, stop using the gifting that God has entrusted to you for your own financial gain and start loving and serving everybody. He tells them that they are to love kindness or to love mercy. The Hebrew word here is chesed, God's steadfast and faithful and never-ending love, his covenantal love toward his people. He says that they are to value that because that is what God is. And in light of that, they are to walk humbly with their God, not to be haughty, but rightly brought low. What is the good life? What's the life that God wants for his people? It's to live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the essence of the law. That is what the law of God reflects at its core. When all is said and done, what God requires of them is that they would live in such a way that they reflect his character to each other and to the watching world showing them what he's like. That they are to live the good life that he created them to live and to walk humbly with their God, to care about the things that he cares about, justice, mercy, love. But herein lies the problem. They haven't done that. And if we're honest, we haven't either. In fact, that's what the whole book has led them to do. What should we do to make it right? Well, do what I told you to do. Yeah, that's kind of the problem. We haven't done that. So just do what you haven't already done. Do you see the conundrum painted for us in the book of Micah? There isn't a sacrifice that you can offer to make it right. I want you to do right, to live justly, to love kindness and mercy, and to walk in humility with me. Now, if we're honest, we're kind of stuck in the same situation, aren't we? God must judge his people because they haven't fulfilled their end of the covenant. They haven't obeyed. They haven't lived justly. They've been cruel and selfish rather than merciful. They've lived in pride and arrogance rather than humility. And so the verdict of Micah leaves them stuck. God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your lives. I want your heart and just do what I've told you to do. So how do they become unstuck? In fact, how do we become unstuck? See, if this were the only verdict, they would be stuck. But Micah doesn't only propose the problem, but looks ahead to the solution. Through Micah's prophecy, God makes some amazing promises of a future really good news. Let me just read a couple of them for you. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Pastor Mike led this in our call to worship. Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This isn't going to happen immediately, but it will come. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Merry Christmas, everybody.
God says, there will come one who will be a ruler in Egypt, or sorry, in Israel. He will shepherd my people in the strength of the Lord. He will come from an unlikely place. He will be born in Bethlehem, and he will bring peace. Now, knowing the rest of the story, we know this to be Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, as predicted by Micah, the one who will make peace between God and mankind. The one who has done justly, who did, who did love mercy, and who walked perfectly in humility with his God. Turn ahead also to Micah chapter 7, verse 7 to 9. Micah reflects, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah said, I'm going to look to God to fix this. I will look to God to provide the solution because obviously we are at a stalemate. There is nothing I can do. God has made his case and he has made it very well. I cannot save myself and so I throw myself on God to do something about it. Verse 8, he continues, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. He says, this is not the end. Though we now sit in darkness, the Lord will bring light. Though we fall down in shame, we will rise. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I, sin I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Micah says, I will bear the shame that I have earned for my sin against him, but he, he will plead my cause and execute his judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I shall look upon his vindication. Notice what happened here in the courtroom. Did you see it? God has turned from the prosecuting attorney to now the defense attorney. He has gone from assuring our condemnation, because he's a good attorney, to now becoming our advocate and our savior. How does he do that? How does he wear both of those hats? If, God, if God's people indeed are guilty, then what hope do they have? God is just, and he must punish the guilty, or he is not just. But then on the other side, God is filled with hesed, his steadfast faithful, covenantal love toward his people that don't deserve it. Like the bride of Hosea two weeks ago, Gomer was a picture for us of God's adulterous bride. So we are his people committing spiritual adultery upon him, and yet his covenantal love holds us fast and continues to pursue us and bring us back. How does he do that? He upholds both because out of the ashes of God's people, Hope would arise from an unlikely place. Bethlehem in Judea. He would rise and become the shepherd of God's people. This shepherd, Jesus, would enter the heavenly courtroom, moving from prosecutor to now the accused. And he would receive the judgment in our place so that he could become now our advocate and defense attorney. He would come, and unlike all who were before him, he would do justice perfectly, never once per perverting it, ministering to poor and rich alike. He would perfectly embody God's kindness, mercy, chesed toward those who didn't deserve it. 
not retaliating in kind, but turning the other cheek to his greatest of enemies who would strike him, even to those who, as Isaiah said, would pull out his beard, seeking to shame him. He would walk in perfect humility with his God, the one who had every reason to walk with swagger and to be served, would take on the mantle of a lowly servant. He who spoke the stars into being would humble himself and become obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And because Jesus is and did those things perfectly, he was then qualified to stand in our place in the courtroom of God and receive the punishment that we deserve as a once-for-all sacrifice. Amen? Here we call that good news. Because all that Jesus has earned with his perfectly just, merciful, righteous life is now transferred to sinful people who put their faith in him. And all of the things that our lives have earned us, a just condemnation and punishment, are transferred to him and he bears it fully in our place. That's what he's doing when he dies on the cross. Now how do I tap into that? How do you tap into that? That sounds like a pretty good deal. That in the courtroom of God, I get to be judged on the basis of Jesus' resume rather than my own performance? That's amazing. To be found righteous because of what he has accomplished rather than what I have accomplished is incredible. We call it good news. It's the gospel. It's the core of what we believe. How do I tap into that? By faith. I believe. I trust that what he did, he did sufficiently, that God is not looking for more sacrifices or more good works, but rather Jesus has done it. And so if that's true, then how many sermons have you heard on Micah 6.8 that get the motivation completely wrong? Just do it. Live justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. That's what God requires. Just do what you haven't been able to do your whole entire life. Just do what you can't do even for a day if you actually understand God's law. So, if I'm justified by the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, then the question for us becomes, do I need to live justly? Do I need to love mercy? Do I need to walk in humility? Or is that just like a, a, an extra credit? Yes, you do. A thousand times yes, you do. But it matters differently. It matters not to earn your salvation. You could never do that. As if you were receiving wages that you deserved. No, it's not to earn your salvation. You couldn't do that. Jesus earns it. But rather now, we live justly and love mercy to reflect our salvation, to show that we have been saved. Let me show you how the law and the commands work for Christians who trust in the grace of God found in Jesus Christ not in our own performance or according to the law. Here's how it works. Number one, the law at its very core reveals our need for the gospel, our need for the Savior. Anyone who has ever attempted to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their neighbor as themselves probably didn't even get a day in. See, we read any number of the Ten Commandments and when properly understood, we haven't kept them perfectly at all. How many of us could say, I have never told a lie or never colored the truth? How many of us could say, I've never coveted what isn't mine and thought I could only be happy there? How many of us have never profaned the Sabbath day? None. That's the point. If you don't believe me, try living justly. Try obeying them, even for a day. Good luck. The law reveals our need for the gospel, our need for a savior. 
The gospel then, when we realize that all the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us by Jesus Christ, we praise him. We worship with all of our hearts saying he did it and he did it perfectly on our behalf. He did it specifically on my behalf. And so the gospel sets me free from the burden of the law to produce and to earn anything. That's not how God operates. He operates on grace. So the law drives me to the gospel, but then the gospel sets me free to view the law differently. The law is no longer a way to earn life, but rather the law and the New Testament commandments are now a way of life, a way to truly live for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes the way that we maximize this life. If God, the creator of life, was gracious enough to tell us how to live, then we'd be idiots not to listen. Right? So often we, we, we apologize for things that we feel like maybe are outdated in the law, when in reality the law is an invitation by God to truly live. And we see it over and over and over again. What one generation holds up is we figured this out. God was foolish and archaic. We come to find out, no, actually God knew what he was talking about there. And just look at the state of things. But see, for the believer, the commands of God change in their tone from one of condemnation, I haven't done it, to one of invitation, come and truly live. See, according to Romans chapter 7, we are no longer under the condemnation of the law, but we are now under the domain of grace. Meaning, even if we don't measure up, and brothers and sisters, we won't, God's framework toward us has changed. We have acceptance in the Lord Jesus Christ that has been fully earned and paid for. We are now free to obey. The power of sin over our lives, the dominion of sin over our lives has been broken. Not fully, but broken assuredly. And even when we don't measure up, God's grace covers over us. We are his children, his kids, and he loves us. And so we are set free then to live truly righteous lives, better than the law could ever produce. Now God is a loving father invites you and invites me to live the way that we were intended to live. As his ch children, we long to reflect his character to the watching world. We long to live out the future kingdom reality, in part now, but one day we'll be fully seen. See, we want to taste ourselves what life is all about, and we want to give the watching world a glimpse of what life will be like when Jesus returns. That's our job. That's our privilege as the people of God, that we get to at least in part taste now what life and relationships are supposed to be. And in doing that, we actually provide a counterculture for the world to see that reveals something about the character of our God. We reveal something about that future kingdom that is to come that, that Mike preached about last week in Isaiah 35, the hope of the future kingdom that will restore and, and, and bring about everything good we get to give a glimpse or an appetizer of what that will be like. Micah himself actually gives us a picture of that future reality. Can I share it with you? In Micah chapter 4, in the midst of God's scathing rebuke and condemnation, he gives this picture of hope and promise for the future. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation because it just makes it so plain. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. 
People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between peoples and will settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and will settle disputes between or, and, and their spears, sorry, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. Though the nations around us follow their idols, we will follow the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen. Do you guys see how that promise has been at least in part fulfilled, but not fully? Do you see how nations that had nothing to do with Israel's God, now people like you and I are calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and finding salvation and knowing Israel's God? Now, there might be some Jewish people in the room, and if so, welcome, awesome, you have an incredible legacy and heritage. But most of us, I would probably venture to say, are Gentiles. And the good news of the gospel is we have an incredible heritage and legacy as well now. In Israel's God, who is now the God of all people. And we see that, that, that this bond actually unites people across nationalities and people groups in a deeper way than any of those nationalities and people groups could ever do so. So that when we think about our brothers and sisters being persecuted, that's our family. And even though they live in many unjust nations around the world, we pray for them and we stand with them and we love them because they're our brothers and our sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see, in many ways, this has been fulfilled. And yet, it hasn't fully been fulfilled. Because as he talks about hammering our spears and swords into plowshares and into pruning hooks for agriculture, and every morning we, we wake up and we read about what's happening in Ukraine and Afghanistan and Nigeria and Sudan, and our hearts break. And we realize that there still is a need to defend the cause of the, of the powerless. There is still war taking place. And so some of this promise has yet to be fulfilled. And so just as Mike preached last week that we look and we, we experience and, and benefit from the new kingdom realities now, so we also long in the future for God to come and make his kingdom fully present. That will come when Jesus returns. So let me review how should a Christian respond to the law or like a command like this from Micah 6.8? The law drives us to our need for the gospel. The gospel, in the gospel, Jesus fulfills all the right, righteous requirements of the law for us. Sorry. So now the law becomes not a way to earn life. Jesus already did that, but a way to truly live and give a glimpse of the future kingdom that is to come. Let me close with a question. When you think of God's people... When you think about Christians and how they live and how they're known, is Micah 6.8 what immediately comes to mind? Oh, Christians, they're the ones that live justly. They love kindness 
and mercy. And they walk in humility with their God. Brothers and sisters, we've got a little bit of a reputation problem right now, don't we? Because of how many of us have chosen to use our public voices, how many of us has chosen, in particular, the tone with which we've chosen to, chosen to defend truth, that is not how most people think of Christians. Now, some of that is deserved, and some of that is not deserved. If I could go back and like undo social media, I probably would. It has done so much to harm the cause of Christ and the reputation of God's people, not because we're scared of sharing truth, but because we lack kindness. We lack kindness. We don't love mercy. We certainly don't take a humble posture. Now that's how Christians are often seen as a whole. And yet, some of that reputation is completely unwarranted. Because many of the Christians that I know are the most justice-seeking, merciful people that I know. I've seen so many of you give generously to those in need, to foster and adopt children without homes and families, to suffer for the sake of others, to sacrifice your time and energy, to counsel struggling friends, to be the ones that other call, others call in a time of crisis. I've seen that over and over and over again. And yet many of you, if people were to think about you, they wouldn't think of, oh, that person loves justice. They love mercy and kindness, and they walk in humility. In fact, some of you, when you hear the word justice or do justice, your immediate response is one of skepticism and mistrust. And to be sure, I get it. Doing justice is in, in a lot of ways has been co-opted by the world to present a picture of justice that has nothing to do with God's justice. I get that reality, but maybe skepticism shouldn't be our first thought when we think about people wanting to do justice. Maybe if our default mode of engagement was one of kindness and mercy toward fellow sinners, we would embrace the humility of the gospel in a way that looks, makes Jesus look a lot better. Oh, to be known once again as goody two-shoes, as if that was the most divisive thing they could say of us, rather than closed-minded bigots. To be sure we don't embrace a world's picture, the world's picture of morality and ethics, but how much different would our engagement be with the world if our default mode of engagement was one of kindness and mercy toward fellow servants? You want an application question today? Are you kind Full stop. Do you care about justice? Now, I get it. There are so many reasons to be outraged if we would let ourselves, and I don't think God's vision for our lives is to be outraged all the time at every single mode of injustice in the world. You'll, you'll drive others around you nuts, and you'll wear yourself out with exhaustion. And yet, is there maybe one thing that's close to your heart where you could live a little bit more justly? where you could lend your voice, not of outrage, but of kindness, but calling for the truth and right treatment. See, to live that way, it takes a certain level of humility, doesn't it? Do you want to know what really humbles us? Trying to do justice and seeing how far short we fall. Seeking to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
Because when even we try to do this for a little while, we're reminded of all the ways that we fall short, which is why we need a different kind of motivation, a gospel motivation. And the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ obliterates pride in every one of its forms, doesn't it? It reminds us every week that we are broken and needy, but there is a wonderful Savior who welcomes us freely. The only prerequisite is to admit your brokenness and need freely. This is one of the reasons why, as a church family, we try to take communion every week. See, one of the benefits of remembering the cross every week is that it humbles us. It reminds us to walk humbly with our God and realize we don't make demands of God. We receive his mercy and his grace. See, just like food and drink nourish and encourage us, nourish and give us energy for our physical lives, so remembering the cross, Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for you so that he could pay your meal ticket for you to come freely humbles us. One of the reasons we ask you to get up out of your seat and come forward and receive the elements is that you're outing yourself. You're saying, I need him, and I'm trusting in him alone for salvation. One of the reasons why we actually do eat and drink is because that metaphor reminds us of our need to remember who he is and what he's done. So brothers and sisters, be shaped and formed by the communion meal as we look back to what he has done and look forward to what he will do. Hear the words of Micah 6 eight. What does God require of you? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You will never do that on your own strength, but run to him and he will make a more loving, just, kind life out of yours. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it provokes us and challenges us. Thank you for the prophet Micah who, who offers us both blistering critique and unbelievable hope. Our hope is found in the one that he pointed to, who was born in Bethlehem, who lived for us, who died for us, who bore the penalty for us so that he now, at this very moment, is interceding with the Father for us as our advocate and our defense attorney. It's in him that we place our hope. In Christ's name, amen.